Isaiah 39, we dipped our toe in it last week, like I said, and just in case you weren't with us or you've slept since then, let's remember how we got there. Isaiah 38 is a flashback. The events of Isaiah 38 and 39 39 happened before the events of Isaiah 36 and 37, before the siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C., before uh, Sennacherib marches on the city and makes demands. And as we open Isaiah 38, Hezekiah is sick, he's dying, he's praying. Lord, would you have mercy on me? Lord, would you look at my good works? Would you, would you pour out your love and mercy upon me? And God, chapter 38, verse 5, said, I will. I will. I've seen your good works, Hezekiah, and I will. Verse 5, he says, I'll give you 15 more years. The question that that prompts, of course, when God extends your life like that, what do you do with that time? What do you do with those extra days? Weird kind of a coincidence, Sunday night, as everyone in my household is dealing with COVID fatigue, Pray for my daughter, by the way. Of everyone in the home, she was hit the hardest. Um, she's been hit the way that Ann and I were hit and, and that I was hit especially last January, last February. Um, she's still testing positive. She's still recovering. Um, she, I know, would still covet your prayers. Um, but weird coincidences, as we're sort of just gathered in a collective stupor on the couch Sunday night, we decided to check out the new Star Trek series, uh, Strange New Worlds, the prequel to the original series. And there's a character, you don't have to be a Trekkie to, to, to follow me on this, there's a character on the show that as the show opens, knows his future. He's seen his future because time crystals and time travel and all kinds of things. He knows he's going to die in just under 10 years. He knows he's going to die. He knows where and how and who's going to be with him. He knows all of the details of his death. He's seen it. And the character asks, and this is apparently going to be kind of a subplot running through at least this season of the series, what do you do with information like that? What do you do with knowledge of your own death? Does it make you cautious or does it make you reckless? Does it make you live for others because apparently you're immortal for the next 10 years? Does it give you a higher sense of duty and calling or does it make you selfish? I, and I don't know how the story ends because I've only seen one episode and I, I might have fallen asleep towards the end. But, but those... That, those are the questions that Hezekiah has. And we know at least how Hezekiah answers them. He says, still in chapter 38, but down at the very end, verse 20, the Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, because God answered his prayer, because God extended his life, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all of the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Hezekiah says, 15 years, I'm going to spend it for God. I'm going to spend it worshiping. I'm going to spend it serving. I'm going to spend it all about the Lord who saved me. But as we glanced over last week to chapter 39, we noticed it didn't turn out that way. 
chapter 39, verse 1. Let's, let's, let's make our way through the chapter. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a president, uh, a president, a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. So just that verse gives us some chronology. That verse places these events 704, 703 BC. How do you get there, Patrick? Because Meredith Baladin ruled Babylon two times. He ruled Babylon, ruled Babylon from 721 to 710 BC, at which time Sargon II of Assyria drove him out. But then, 704 BC, he was able to push back and, and take power back. He took Babylon back for a year or so. Until 703, Babylon falls to Sennacherib. So this visit that we're reading about in chapter 39 and, and Hezekiah's illness, which preceded it, is part of the run-up to the events of Isaiah 36 and 37. Merodach Baladin is pushing back against Assyria. He's trying to regain power, or possibly he just has. Either way, he's looking for possible allies against Assyria. That's why he comes to visit Hezekiah in Jerusalem. He sent letters and a present to Hezekiah for her. He heard that he had been sick and had recovered. This is more than a get well card. This is an overture for an alliance. And he flatters Hezekiah by making this overture. Because Judah was a minor state at the time, comparatively speaking at least. Babylon wasn't a super state. Maybe a, maybe a junior superpower. In, in, in our day, Babylon wouldn't have been at this point a United States or a Russia or a China, but it might have been a Japan, a South Korea, a significant power on the ascent, an up-and-comer. Verse 2, Hezekiah was pleased with them. He was flattered. The flattery worked. And he showed them, Hezekiah showed the Babylonians the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all of his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. The rabbis, among the rabbis, there's a legend that he went so far as to show them the two stone tablets that Moses carried down from the mountain. The question, of course, is how could he do that? They were in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. The rabbi's response was, oh, he showed them the broken tablets, the first tablets that Moses brought down that had been preserved and stored in another ark outside the Holy of Holies. I don't know if I believe it. But the fact that this legend is, is attached to this series of events tells us when, when Isaiah says that Hezekiah showed them everything, he really means he showed them everything. Opened up everything that he could to them. Anything that they wanted to see, they got to see. And Hezekiah didn't see a problem with that, obviously. Didn't see a problem with it even when Isaiah confronts him. Verse 3, 
Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What are you doing? What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Isaiah knows the answer. I, I think he's just beside himself. He wants to hear Hezekiah say it. So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, What's the big deal? They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Boy, did you mess up. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, everything you showed them, and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, sons whom you will beget. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is, of course, prophecy of the Babylonian captivity that would follow roughly 100 years later. We read about it in 2 Kings 24. We read about it in 2 Chronicles 36. We read about it in Daniel. And actually, Daniel, if you want to glance over there or, or just listen, in Daniel, verse 7 is specifically fulfilled. The promise of some of Hezekiah's descendants being eunuchs. Daniel 1, verse 6, among those of the sons of Judah carried into captivity were Daniel, Haniah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave David the name Belteshazzar, to, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah, Abednego. The chief of the eunuchs gave them those names, suggesting, maybe not proving beyond a shadow of a doubt, but suggesting that they were made eunuchs as part of their captivity. Fulfillment of the prophecy that we just read. Question, though, why such harsh judgment? It was a tour. He walked him around his house and around his palace and possibly around the temple. Why such a seemingly disproportionate response, like by God? Commentators answer the question different ways. The easy answer, the first answer, is pride. And certainly there's, there's pride going on. We see, we see pride oozing out of Hezekiah. Look at all my treasure. Look at my kingdom. Look at, look. Pride was part of it. Pride is the root of all sin. Other commentators point out that God has been speaking to Hezekiah and to his father and to his grandfather, hey, no alliances. Trust me. Don't trust Egypt. Don't trust Ethiopia. Don't trust any political alliances. Trust me. And certainly that's part of it. But I think that there's something that many miss and, and actually, it was a brother in the fellowship who, who pointed this out. Kind of a, a light bulb went on in his mind when we were back in Isaiah 13. Flip back there if you don't mind. And, and he shared it with me after service, and, and his light bulb was my light bulb, and we were sitting there having light bulbs together. Isaiah 13, 
for decades, Isaiah, by, 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 the, by the time we get around to, to this, this visit of the Babylonians to Hezekiah, Isaiah's been prophesying for decades, right? And he's been prophesying about the future of Jerusalem and Judah, the future of Egypt and Ethiopia, the future of Israel and Syria. He's been prophesying about lesser states like Moab and, and Philistia and Tyre. He's been prophesying a lot about Assyria, but he also has been prophesying about Babylon. Now when we cross over into chapter 40, it's going to be all Babylon all the time, almost. But there have been prophecies about Babylon already spoken by the time Hezekiah ascends the throne. Prophecies that Hezekiah should have known. Prophecies like we read in Isaiah 13. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gate of the nobles. I've commanded my sanctified ones. I've also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude of the mountains, like that of many people. A tumultuous noise of the kingdom of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Babylon is going to be your enemy, Isaiah said. But then we go to Isaiah 14. We read beginning in verse 3, the fall of Babylon. It shall come to pass in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and from the hard bondage in which you are made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased. The golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke. He who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. And now the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Babylon is going to be your enemy, Isaiah has been saying. Yes, Assyria is the immediate threat, but on the other side of Assyria, Babylon is lurking in the wings, and God will use them as an instrument, first of Assyria's destruction, and then of yours. You're opening your palace. You're opening your kingdom. You're opening your heart, as it were, to a people that God has said will oppress you and persecute you and carry you off God's people. So yes, pride. And yes, disobedience around alliances. But even more so, disregard. Callous, cavalier disregard of God's word. And that makes his response a little less disproportionate, right? Hezekiah's reaction, back in Isaiah 39... So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. Isaiah 39, verse 8. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my day. Hey, I'm okay. I mean, that sounds really, really, you know, horrible what, what you're talking about. But I won't be here to see it because God said 15 years. And we talked about this last week, right? But I want to talk about it again tonight. And I want to talk about it in the context of yesterday's school shooting, another school shooting. Because, because, 
because I look at the tragedy and the loss of life and, and the outburst of evil, because that's what it was. Even, even 24 hours later, not even, I, I guess just barely, I already see the church beginning to act like Hezekiah, shrugging, not hearing, understanding, applying the right lesson from prophecy. I did an experiment this morning. I tried to see how long it would take me scrolling my Facebook feed, how long I could scroll social media before I'd come across somebody saying, well, Jesus said it would be like this. 90 seconds. Thought maybe that was a fluke, so I tried again. After that, it took four minutes. Then I tried again, and it took two minutes after that. Then I decided I had better things to do, but... Jesus said it would be like this. Don't get me wrong, he did. Matthew 24, verse 12, in the, in the last days, lawlessness will abound. Yeah, Jesus called it for sure. Paul called it in even greater detail. 2 Timothy 3, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It's a familiar passage. 2 Timothy, th Timothy 3, but know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. Well, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We know these verses. We recite these verses to each other. We look at the headlines and we compare them to these verses and we see there it is and, the, and, and there it is to the point where we read these headlines and, and we, we, we see uh, you know, on, on, on TV the video of this tragedy, this, this unspeakable, horrific violence. We're almost numb to it. Because, because we've inoculated ourselves. We talk so often about wars and rumors of wars and the persecution of the church and the rise of anti-Semitism and economic upheaval and, and all of the other things we associate with the end times and we say, well, yeah, Jesus told us. And we think less about the tragedy and more about, you see, Jesus told us and, and that Jesus is coming. And, and, and this is like two school shootings in what, 10 days? So Jesus has to be coming soon. And he might be. But he might not be. I think we're guilty of misreading prophecy, misapplying prophecy. Not in the exact same way that Hezekiah was, but misapplying nonetheless. Matthew 24, which I conveniently didn't tab, but Matthew 24, before he talks about lawlessness, the disciples are asking them, what is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, say, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. 
And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. We misread what Scripture means, what Jesus means when he speaks of the last days, when Paul speaks of the last days. Because Paul in Romans 13 don't try to come up. I'm going to keep up. I'm going I'm to machine gun a couple of scriptures real quickly. Romans 13, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Hebrews 10 let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more so as you see the day approaching. James 5, verse 8. You also be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 Peter 4, 7. For the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. What's my point? We're not waiting for the last days, and we're not entering the last days either. We've been living in the last days all of our lives, you and me. The church has been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. For the last 2,000 years, there have been wars and rumors, and selfishness, and money-hungry, and, 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 and pridefulness, and lawlessness, and, and crime, and disobedience, and disrespectfulness. And we need to not be like Hezekiah and think that we're, we're, we're in a new season, a new dispensation where we can start ticking down the days, 15 years left, 10 years left, 5 years left, a week from next Tuesday. We need to not be like Hezekiah and get tunnel vision. We need to not be like Hezekiah and say, well, I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I'm a part of Jesus' kingdom because it seems like pretty soon things are going to get pretty bad. No, what we read in Scripture is the days that we live in are evil still. And our calling still is to reach out and rescue people of this world blinded by sin still. This is not a time to coast into the finish line, lulled into some sense of false sense of complacency, because we see things that make us think that Jesus' return is imminent. It's always been imminent. For 2,000 years it's been imminent, and it's no more imminent tonight than it was when Paul wrote his letter, when Peter wrote his letter, when James wrote his letter, when the author of Hebrews wrote his letter. We need to not be complacent. We need to not coast into the finish line. We need to be like, like, like that runner last year. I forget what, the, what the, the athletic event was 
but I'm sure that you saw the, the video, it was everywhere, of, of the guy stopping and grabbing someone who had stumbled, who had rolled an ankle or something, and, and helping him across the finish line. That needs to be us. And if somehow we were absolutely certain that Jesus' return was a matter of weeks or a matter of days, that would still need to be us. I don't know. Maybe it's just the people that I'm listening to, the people I'm reading and, and, and interacting with online, but it, it but it's almost seems like people are saying, you know, that just shows you the number of the Gentiles is almost up. Pretty soon, the, the last person who's going to be saved is going to be saved. It's just a matter of time now. Really, all we, all we can do is wait. If we pass the point of no return. Nothing in Scripture says that, family. Nothing in Scripture says that. And even if it did, wouldn't that be a time to, to, to heed Jude's words and snatch some out of the fire? The stories I'm reading today, and again, I, 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 I didn't read everything. And then I don't know everything, and I don't know everyone. But I read an awful lot of, 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 of people talking about, it's the last days. This is just more evidence. Jesus is coming. Yeah, Jesus is coming back soon, and he's coming back for his church. But until he comes back, we need to keep being the church, don't we? Jesus is coming back, yes. But until he does, we need to be busy about our Father's business. We need to be continuing the mission Jesus passed on to us to seek and save the lost. We can't save them, but we can tell them how to be saved. We can introduce them to the one who saves. It's everything we're here to do. But the people who aren't talking about, you see Jesus is coming back soon. This is just another proof. The ones who aren't talking about that are talking about gun control. The need for gun control from the left. The, the, the need to fight gun control from the right. We don't need gun control. We need prayer in the schools. The problem is that debate misses it. It, it, it does. Patrick, how can you say that? Gun, gun control will restrict our liberty. If we, if we lose the right to defend ourselves, if we, if we lose the right to take up arms, then, then free speech will follow and freedom to worship will follow. And you're probably right. And look, I agree. Let me, let me be clear. Let me, let me put my cards on the table. I'm a gun owner. And I'm a Second Amendment guy. And I haven't seen a good example of, of gun control working, of, of gun control achieving its stated aims. I do see what happened in Chicago. The thing is, there are plenty of people who are going to take up that cause. Lots and lots of people are ready to get lots and lots agitated about the Second Amendment. And hey, put it on a ballot. 
I'll, I'll, I'll vote Second Amendment all the way. Put a petition in front of me. I'll sign it. But Second Amendment activism is not why I'm here. And it's not why you're here. That wasn't the mission. That wasn't the commission that Jesus gave the church. Here's what I know. Not what I believe. What I know. Laws don't free people. And laws don't enslave people. Sin enslaves people. Jesus frees people. And that's the battle I'm called to fight. That's the business of the church. Prayer in schools, I'm for it. Bibles in the schools, I'm for it. But I'm not going to spend an inordinate amount of time lobbying for either one. Because here's the thing. Without Jesus in the heart of those praying, who are those students praying to? Without the Holy Spirit indwelling the students reading the Bible, what are they going to understand? We can put prayer back in the schools, we can put the Bible back in the school, but without Jesus, neither will avail much. But listen, you introduce students to Jesus and introduce teachers to Jesus. They'll pray whether they're allowed to or not. And they'll read the Bible whether they're allowed to or not. Because where the believer in Jesus Christ goes, worship follows. We need to put Jesus in the schools. The second day stories after a shooting like this are always profiling the shooter, Salvador Ramos. And the last time I checked, we don't know a lot about him. 18 years old, a loner, not many friends, lived with his grandmother, parents out of the picture as far as anybody knows. Would gun control have stopped what happened yesterday? I doubt it. Would Jesus in his heart have stopped yesterday? I believe it. And take it a step further. Would a community of believers reaching out, loving in Jesus' name, stepping in to be a father figure, a mentor, a brother, a family, could that have made a difference? I think quite possibly. We can't solve spiritual problems with political solutions. And make no mistake, what our country faces is a spiritual problem. Patrick, it's not that simple. I disagree. I think it's exactly that simple. I don't think it's at all easy. Simple and easy are two different things. No, I don't think for a minute it's easy. But I think it's simple. 
We need to be about our Father's business. We need to preach the gospel to every living creature. We need to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But I think believers across the country are about to get sucked down a rabbit trail. I think a huge amount of time and energy is about to be diverted into a gun control debate. And, and my thing is win or lose, the cause of Christ is going to lose. Because time that we spend talking about guns is time that we don't spend talking about Jesus. I'm not saying roll over. I'm not saying go to the nearest police station and hand over your weapons. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there are people who will carry on that fight. It's not our fight. Oh, but, but we, we represent an important voting block. We carry political power. The evangelical right, be careful. Please be careful. Because isn't that where Hezekiah went? Didn't Hezekiah look to political solutions for spiritual problems? Didn't he look to the Babylonians and say, hey, this alliance has potential. This alliance might get me what I need. This alliance might be good for our nation. Yeah. But it relegates God and God's word to, to, the, to the bottom of the pile. Let's wrap up. I'm just saying, like Hezekiah, we can focus on ourselves. We can say time is short. I need to do me. But the real lesson of prophecy is that Jesus is coming back soon and I can't focus on myself. None of us can. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. We have to assume that it's soon. And our agenda has to be his. We don't have time to go chase our agenda and, and, and then circle back and when, I'm, and when I'm done serving myself, I'll get around to serving God. Now the imminency of Christ's return means that we have to all the more be urgently pursuing God's agenda. And the second lesson from Hezekiah is we need to pursue God's agenda God's way. Not with activism, with evangelism. If we succeed in changing the country but we don't change the hearts, we've failed. But if we speak out and share the gospel and God brings revival and changes hearts, it will change the country more dramatically, more transformatively than any political movement. I love my country. The United States is genius. And the freedoms that we enjoy are a gift from God.
but I'm a citizen of heaven. And the reason I'm here is to help refugees emigrate to my homeland. Second Chronicles 32 as we wrap up. Isaiah 39, 8 is not the last word on Hezekiah. We get the last word in the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 32. Verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. That's everything we read, right? He was given a sign, the sign of the sundial going backwards, the sign that his life would be extended. But he got prideful. But here's what we don't get in Isaiah. Then, verse 26, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. He humbled himself. And so the judgment of God was not as bad, or at least not as sudden, as it could have been. Not only were Hezekiah's days extended, but Judah's days were extended. Hezekiah repented. And at some point, after getting lifted up in pride, at some point he determined to redeem the remainder of his days for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's name. And so do we. Psalm 78. Which I also failed to tab. Psalm 78 as we close. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we've heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he's done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they might arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. The psalmist tells us, teach your children well. We're fathers, we're mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, many of us. And we want to protect our children. We want to protect them from school shootings. We want to protect them from diseases and viruses. We want to protect them from lies and propaganda. But even more, we need to protect them from sin and death and Satan. And the way to do that is to tell them about Jesus and his wonderful work on the cross, his saving hand, 
that even now is reaching out to parents and to teachers and to school children. We need to tell our children about Jesus. We need to tell every living creature about Jesus and about the love that he has and about the grace that is waiting for those who call upon his name. Jesus, thank you for your grace. And thank you for your saving hand. Thank you that you came for us. And thank you that in dark days, days of pandemics, days of war and famine, days of senseless violence, you are still there, saving. Your love is still there, calling. Your grace is still available. Lord, seek and save the lost. And use us to build your kingdom.